This episode of the Single Tracks podcast is brought to you by Outer Bike. Are you searching for your next mountain bike or just looking for an excuse to visit a premier bike destination during prime riding season? Then you should sign up for Outer Bike, taking place this summer, August 18th through the 20th at Mount Crested Butte, Colorado. Outer Bike is the best demo event in the universe, offering you the chance to ride the latest bikes from top manufacturers. And it's all taking place in Crested Butte one of the top five mountain bike destinations in the world, according to readers of single tracks. Outer bike attendees will have lift access to the cross country and downhill trails at Evolution Bike Park, as well as some of the area's other classic single track. Admission includes lunch each day and beer at happy hour. Visit outerbike.com for more details and to register for the Crested Butte event. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today Greg and Aaron and I are going to be talking about getting and staying in shape for mountain biking. So Greg, we'll start off with you. What's your number one tip for getting and staying in shape for mountain biking? Ride your bike more. Okay, enough said. That's all we have this week. Join us again next week for the Single Tracks podcast. Just kidding. Actually, there are a number of things that mountain bikers can do to improve fitness, Depending on what the objective is, if it's, you know, just getting started for the first time or if you're a seasoned rider looking to take on bigger challenges, whatever the case is, there is more than you can do than just ride more. So we're going to talk about some things you can do, especially for people who are pressed for time like most of us are. So let's start with someone who's just starting out. How do you lay the groundwork for mountain bike fitness if you've been inactive for a while or if you've never really been active? If you've never been active before, it's going to be an uphill battle for sure. So pretty much anything you can do to start moving is going to help you. And it really that depends on where you're starting from. Like if you don't get off the couch and you want to start mountain biking like this is something you've never done before you might want to start off with just like walking around your neighborhood like every day um, for a week and sort of move from there uh, but once you start getting on the bike things like uh riding on the road like really easy flat road rides riding on a trainer inside um, anything can help you start to move towards real mountain biking yeah that's a good point and a lot of people might say, well, I don't have a trainer. I'm not going to buy a trainer just to get started. But, you know, if you've got a gym membership or you got access to like a YMCA, you can always get in there and get on one of those stationary bikes and just start turning the pedals. Yeah. And if you have a mountain bike, uh, you can ride that on a road. You don't, you don't necessarily need a road bike to go do road rides. You know, you can use the tires. If you have knobby tires on there, you can ride with those on the road or if you want to make it a little bit easier decrease your rolling resistance you can you can buy some uh, slicks that'll fit on your mountain bike and that'll help you help you save your tires for the dirt and also uh, just kind of make it a more pleasurable road riding experience but yeah like greg said you know starting easy is really the key it can be discouraging if you're used to riding at a at a high level uh, but you just need to give it time you know if you've been off the bike don't try to jump in on a ride with your old riding buddies unless your your ego can take it. Um, you know, riding by yourself is really going to allow you to uh, ride within your limits and, and instead of uh, you know going out and riding and have the ride turn into a race. Really, I mean, a good base is really important to have before you start any like specific intense training. You know, strong base is going to stick with you for a long time, whereas like the high intensity, like sharp skills you develop through you know specific training like interval that stuff wears away pretty quickly uh you know for instance 
you know, I could probably take a month off from riding and I could go do a 50 mile ride, no problem, but I just wouldn't be very fast. You know, to have that speed and intensity, it's something you really have to be honing constantly. Yeah. So we're going to talk about some of the methods you can use to get those really specific skills, but you also mentioned uh, building up a base. So I wonder, does fitness from other activities like running or uh, swimming or sports like soccer, does that translate into mountain biking? From my experience, some fitness definitely translates, uh, especially from things like running. However, bike-specific endurance and speed is tough to train for off the bike. So, you know, if you're an, a distance runner, you're going to have a big leg up on somebody who doesn't do any exercise. You know, especially runners just have that ability to just go hard and go long and just to dig really deep. Um, but even they have a hard time sometimes translating to the bike if they don't do any biking and their bike-specific muscles aren't up to it. Yeah, I mean, if, if you're fit from other sports, that's surely going to help lessen the time needed to get up to pace on a mountain bike. But you can't draw a straight line from one sport to another. You know, for instance, I can ride a bike all day, but you know, if you made me run five miles, I'd be absolutely waxed at the end of it. <laughs> and on the flip side, I've had plenty of friends who are runners, and I've taken them on mountain bike rides and they're totally beat after a five mile mountain bike ride. So, you know, it's not, it's not a one-to-one relationship in any way. Road riding is definitely beneficial in terms of fitness, but you know, the technical bike handling skills that only comes from practice on the trail. Yeah. So I guess the takeaway here is that even if you're really fit and you're competitive at another sport like running, uh, don't be disappointed when that doesn't translate 100% to mountain biking. Like Aaron said, you'll get there eventually, but it's not like you can just you know hop on a mountain bike and beat all your buddies just because you're a really good runner. Okay, so another important aspect of getting and staying in shape for mountain biking is diet. What kind of tips do you have for that, Aaron? What's sort of your thinking on diet for mountain biking? Yeah, I mean, obviously being lighter is going to help you go faster. It's going to improve your your power to weight ratio. Uh, It's really going to help you on the climbs. Um, You know, it's going to help you with your endurance, those sorts of things. But really just make sure you eat a balanced diet. I mean, this is not not anything earth shattering here. But, uh, you know, eat plenty of whole foods. Don't drink too much alcohol, sadly. Uh, And I would say read the labels of the stuff that you're buying. If you're buying prepackaged foods, really pay attention to what you're putting into your body. You know, avoid sugary drinks and other empty calories, especially when you're not riding. You know, you can get away with that stuff during a ride. You know, you can have a a Coke mid-ride or maybe eat a Snickers or something like that. Obviously, it's not the best thing for you, but you don't need to be eating that stuff when you're not riding. That's just just empty calories. Be really skeptical of, of drink mixes and energy bars, you know, so-called energy bars, because all food is energy when it comes down to it. And when you start looking at some of these things that are, that claim to be, you know, energy bars or food or, you know, workout specific items that there's a lot of stuff in there that you don't need. There's a lot of added sugars. Um, you know, maybe there's a ton of protein and you don't necessarily need protein that much protein during a ride i mean there there's some insane amounts of protein in some of these uh energy bars and you know you got to find out what works for you but you know that stuff can cause uh gastrointestinal distress or aka an upset stomach while you're riding cook at home so you know exactly what's going into what you eat and even 
make your own ride food. You know, there's tons of recipes to make uh, different sorts of bars that you can take out with you on the trail. Uh, so in addition to being better for you, it's probably going to save you some money too. I'll add that, you know, while I don't really count calories or anything like that, I do tend to indulge in things like craft beer or, you know, lots of Mountain Dew, but only after I've been riding a good bit. So, um, I try to stay conscious of, you know, limiting that stuff and not just, you know, having a beer every single day, but really saving that for like, after I've done a workout or after I've done a ride, um, so that I make sure that I'm burning off those sort of added calories that I'm putting in. And honestly too, you know, one of the big reasons I like to stay active and like to bike and run a little bit as well is because I can eat more. I love eating. So like that to me is, is kind of the reward that I get for doing a, doing a good workout like that. So What about for people who are able to ride, let's say, 10 miles, you know, during the week? They do after-work rides, like, in the 8 to 10-mile range, but they're looking to work up to bigger rides, so doing, like, a 25-mile epic on the weekend. What are some tips for getting in shape for that? I would say gradually increase the uh, the distance that you're riding. So if if you can currently handle a 10-mile ride with no problem, you know, try to bump it up to 12 the next time you go out, but just don't try to, to progress too quickly. I would say is the, the main thing, like we were talking about when you're just starting, um, you know, you want to ease your way into it. And the same goes for increasing your distance. You know, if you can ride 10 miles right now, you don't want to necessarily, you know, maybe 15 miles is too much. So just, uh, you know, take it slow. What about for the person who's just trying to build up endurance, you know, someone who wants to enjoy their rides a little bit more and not suffer so much, especially toward the end of their rides? So you can increase endurance in a couple of different ways. The simplest way is just to go out and ride longer. Um, you know, these rides, uh, the longer rides shouldn't be too strenuous. You try to pick a trail system that has rolling terrain if possible. You don't want to uh, go somewhere that has a bunch of you know really tough steep climbs because that's going to spike your heart rate and it's not going to really help you improve your endurance as much. So you know this is basically just riding at a moderate pace for a long period of time, pretty simple. But it only kind of works if you have that free time to go out and ride, which isn't possible for everyone. Probably the quicker way to improve your endurance is through specific intervals. So you can do a couple of days of intense intervals each week. But you don't want to do those on back-to-back days. Uh, you want to mix in some little bit longer, less intense rides, and you'll start seeing improvements in a matter of weeks. Uh, but yeah, again, don't don't forget to allow adequate time to recover. You mentioned heart rate. Is there sort of a range that you keep in mind when you're trying to build endurance? Yeah, it's going to be different for each person, and you know, there's tons of information out there on training using heart rate zones and. Uh, Basically, endurance, if you're, your endurance zone is typically zone three. So, like, my max heart rate um, for endurance zone three is, like, 160. So, if I'm out on a ride and I'm focusing on endurance, um, I don't want my heart rate to get above 160, which, um, you know, it's, it's a moderately strenuous ride. You should be able to, you know, carry on a conversation, maybe not exactly like we're having now, but you shouldn't be you know, gasping breaths in between every word. So yeah, I mean, there's no shortage of information on, on heart rate training if, uh, if you want to use that. And that's probably the, the cheapest way to 
get into really specific trading. Of course, you can use power meters, but then uh, you know you're talking about significant upfront costs to uh, you know to get those installed on your bike. I would also say for general endurance training and looking to increase, you know, setting specific numbers and building specific uh, distance per ride or per long ride is a good key. But for me personally, I find that sometimes I'll hit the end of a ride, I'll feel tired, I'll feel accomplished, it's been a good ride. Um, but if I really am trying to increase my endurance, I need to find a way to push through that barrier. And most of the time, once I do push through that wall, on the other side of it, I find deeper reserves of energy that I didn't necessarily know that were there and that I hadn't been tapping into. So even though I might feel tired at the end of what might have been my normal ride, as I choose to push through that wall, I find, oh, there's other stuff on the other side here. And you only really start to make those kinds of endurance gains once you get used to pushing past what's comfortable. Because if you always stay at what's comfortable, you know, you're not going to um, add on to that in any way. So learning to push through that discomfort and that pain is, is sort of key. Indeed. So now I want to talk a little bit about training for uh, an endurance race or, you know, a big race like a 100-mile mountain bike race, also known as a dirty century. And I'll throw in my own experience with this here. Basically, to do a really long ride, like a 100-mile ride, you're going to want to work up to that distance. And one of the methods that a lot of people use, including myself, uh, is to schedule out longer and longer rides each week. So the first week, your long ride might be, let's say, 25 miles. And then the next week, it'll be 30 miles, and you'll increase each week until you get to 100 miles. And Generally, you know, everybody's plan is different, but generally you're not going to want to increase the distance more than about 10% each week. And you're also going to need to make sure that you're doing a lot of work uh, on the days in between. So you want to still be getting in a lot of miles, uh, not not anything as long as your long ride, obviously, but um, you still want to have a good base that you're working on during the week. And you also need to build in a few rest weeks as well there to make sure that your body is recovering and that you're able to continue to add mileage. And then the other thing is if it is a race, you're going to want to taper as you get close to the event. So you're not going to want to do like a, you know, 90 mile ride the week before you're supposed to do a hundred, uh, the next weekend. So that's at least what I've found. And that's something that's been sort of adapted from like marathon training as well. So if you're a runner, um, and you've seen one of these plans, you can use sort of a similar strategy for mountain biking as well. Yeah, if you're working up to a 100-mile ride or race, you're going to want to allow plenty of time for training. So don't think you can start two to three months out and be successful. Think more like six months plus. You're going to need a really solid base to begin with, and then you're going to you know, do that, start doing the intervals to work on specific areas. Uh, if you have a major goal like this for your season, either if it's a ride, if it's a race or, uh, even a trip, um, you know, I'd really recommend getting a training plan or better yet a coach. Lots of major events, they'll give you a suggested training plan, which you, when you sign up and that can be a really good place to start. Uh, however, working one-on-one with a coach is probably going to be the best route because a coach, you can sit down with them. They can assess your strengths and weaknesses and they'll develop a training plan tailored specifically to address your needs, you know. 
And I also think you're more likely to stick to a plan if there's a coach you're accountable to and you're, you're paying for it. I know I found this to be true for myself. Um, I've tried to follow plans in the past that I've, I've gotten through events or whatever, but once you're plunking money down for a coach, you're way more likely to, to stay, on, uh, stay on your plan. Yeah, it's like it's like going to college on your parents' dime versus paying it yourself. You exactly. know, you're skipping all the classes when your parents are paying for it, but then yeah, when it's your money, you you're there every day. I would like to jump in and reiterate that like, yeah, we're talking a lot about racing, but this stuff can apply to a trip too, especially if you're doing like a guided trip and there's a specific itinerary you're trying to achieve over the course of the week, and I've currently getting ready to head to British Columbia for uh, a trip with Sacred Rides and it's going to be like something like seven or eight days of riding in a row. And so for myself, I've gotten spanked in the past on a few of these. So I created my own little training plan, but also a taper before the trip. Um, so I can come into this coming week, like as fresh as possible with a good base built, um, but not having destroyed myself right beforehand. So you can take a lot of these things we're talking about and apply them to all sorts of different goals that you might have for yourself. Yeah, definitely. That's one of the other things I wanted to ask you guys about is preparing for, say, a bikepacking trip or a multi-stage race where you're riding back to back to back. Uh, is there anything different that you guys do to prepare for those? For a lot of people, I bet it seems pretty overwhelming, you know, to say I'm going to bikepack 500 miles on the Colorado Trail. You know, it's it's kind of hard to even imagine where you start from that. So do you guys have any experience with that or any tips? Well, you can practice big back-to-back efforts on consecutive days. So, you know, a lot of times we've been talking about like having a long ride on Saturday. This might mean doing two long rides in a row or three and uh, seeing how your body feels and learning how to adapt to that. But the trick is you can only do that so often without risking overtraining and pushing your body too far. Again, we still have to like build at like a set a set pace. This would be a great question for a pro bike backer. I am, and I am not one of those people. So, um, I can say personally for this upcoming trip, a lot of things I've just been focusing on are just building mileage, you know, building my long ride, but also building rides during the week. So my total weekly hours on the bike are increasing. And that's sort of been one of the big numbers I've been tracking is, you know, total weekly hours. So that's not even just like one ride. It's been total amount of time on the bike. And lots of times if you're tracking, say, mileage for your long ride, that can be really deceptive. I know when I was doing dirty century training, I'd be like, oh, I need to do 60 miles. And then I would go and like do the easiest 60 miles I could find. That's not necessarily (laughs) super helpful. So I've been, you know, tracking total hours, elevation gain and things like that um, to do more well-rounded Yeah, totally been there. Did the same thing with my dirty century training where, yeah, some days I would just be really tired and be like, okay, yeah, what's the easiest route I can take to get my miles in? But that that doesn't necessarily help you out in the long run. I will say that um, I've done a a few trips where I do back-to-back days of riding, um, including some light bikepacking for a week in Colorado. And what I found was, I mean, Number one, for sure, you need to have a good base. By the end of the week-long trip, I was actually feeling more fit than when I started. But again, that depends on the route that you're taking. Like, you can't be at your max every single day. You know, you need to be at a place where you're comfortable each day and you're just building on the the day before. 
and not overdoing it. Yeah, and I would add into that, it depends a bit what trip you're talking about. So if you're, say, like doing a bikepacking trip, but you're planning like 50 miles a day, that's one thing. So you you have a lot of time to recover overnight and at the end of the day, whereas if you're like Neil Belchenko and you don't sleep for the entire entirety of your trip, that's a bit different. So um, even just doing a chunk of time each day, um, you have to factor in the, the recovery that you can have even on those days, um, despite the fact that you're doing back-to-back efforts. But if you're riding straight around the clock, that's a that's a different story. And I don't, I've never done that. So don't ask me about that. Yeah, it seems superhuman. So yeah, we'll need to ask those guys how they do it for sure. Well, I found for these multi-day trips or bikepacking stage races, like having a training plan has been things been most beneficial to me. You know, I've done it a handful of stage races now and a couple of them just trying to wing it on my own. And then a couple using a training plan and definitely the training plan was much more beneficial. Um, you know, I've, I found that I was fitter, I was faster, um, I recovered better. So, you know, all the training uh, really, really helped, you know. And this, like I said, you know, you got you to gotta allow ample time for this. I mean, you, you know, when I did, uh, you know, I did Pisgah Stage Race this year and, you know, the Transylvania Epic before I've done the BC Bike Race, you know, I, I would start training in the winter, you know, I'd, I'd in the fall, do some fun rides and stuff like that. And then by the time, you know, December, January rolls around, that's when you really want to start, you know, getting into your specific training regimen and you really want to stick to it. And I mean, it, it really helps. And, you know, like Greg said, uh, recovery during the, during the trip or during the stage race or bikepacking or whatever is, is also important. So once you finish riding for the day, relax, you know, kick your feet up, be sure to hydrate, be sure to eat well, don't eat too much, don't drink too much alcohol. That can really, really hamper your recovery. So it's true, you can, you know, continue to get fitter and faster throughout the week. That's what I found at the Pisgah Stage Race this year. I felt like I was getting uh, stronger as the week progressed, like Jeff said. Yeah, during my hut-to-hut trip, actually all the guys in our group, we basically just went into sloth mode, like as soon as we would get to the hut and like move as little as possible and, you know, recover and save our energy for the next day. So it's definitely, it's definitely doable. Okay, so we talked a lot about building endurance and working on riding longer distances and longer, spending more time on the bike. What about increasing speed? That's a part of getting in shape as well. So what are some tips for getting faster on the bike? Intervals for sure. And again, there's a variety of intervals, but yeah, really the best way to, to get that intensity is to go out and do it. Um, you know, and that's, there's all different kinds of intervals you can do. There's like, you know, climbing intervals, there's power intervals, there's like intervals where you ride, at your max for, you know, five minutes at a time. So there's, there's all sorts of intervals you can do. Um, that's again, why I would recommend working with a coach. So you're not just guessing, but also there's certain things you can do in the gym, you know, squats that can help develop, uh, explosive power for short periods, stuff like that. Uh, so there's definitely no shortage of ways to, to, to get faster, um, through intervals. You can also ride with people that are faster than you. That's going to get you out of your comfort zone. It's going to get you to push yourself harder than you would riding alone. And it'll also give you the opportunity to see what lines the uh, faster riders choose when they go down the trail. 
Yeah, riding with faster people definitely helps, you know, especially if you're the slightest bit competitive, you're going to want to stay with those faster riders and it'll make you faster in the process. What about uh, racing? A lot of people think that maybe they need to be in shape before they can race, but it also seems like a good opportunity to start building some speed as well. Yeah, I, I personally think racing is a great way to get faster, especially, like you said, if you're competitive at all. And it can be a great way to gauge improvements in your fitness. So if you are following a training plan, going out and racing can be helpful to see how things are progressing, see if you are getting faster. So I'd recommend doing a series. Like if there's a local race series, sign up for one of those. And in that way, it'll allow you to see how you stack up race after race against you know, the same or similar riders. And you can, you know, if the terrain's similar, you can see what your times are, like what your average speed are, speed is. And, uh, yeah, that'll, that really allows you to, to gauge whether or not you're getting faster. Yeah. Not only that, even if you're just racing yourself, a race is a good opportunity because it's generally going to be done on a closed course. That's well-marked, um, where you can really just go as fast as you want without worrying about, running into other people or, you know, getting lost or anything like that. So um, definitely take advantage of races if there are some in your area. Okay, so shifting gears a little bit, what are your thoughts about weightlifting or building muscle for mountain biking? Is that beneficial for people who are trying to get in shape for mountain biking? So building muscle mass, as in bulking up, is generally a bad idea unless you're big into downhill. A lot of these Downhill is a big exception because you need um, explosive power, you know, fitness, but also explosive power to get through flats and slight descents and upper body to move the bike around and handle really big obstacles. But I have a sense that that we're not really talking about DH so much in this podcast. So um, for pretty much everything else, bulking up is not a good idea. However, you do need to work on keeping opposing muscle groups in shape. And so in that sense, weight training can be really good if it's really targeted. Um, but even when you're doing that, you want to focus on higher reps, uh, lower weight, and not accruing unnecessary uh, body mass. I have a lot less muscle mass than I did a decade ago, and not having to haul around that extra mass makes me faster and fitter on the bike. So, you know, it's <laughs> those two things really work against each other. Yeah, right. Like Greg said, and you don't really want to add that mass because, as as you said, that's going to slow you down, particularly on the climbs. You know, that's why you don't see any big jack dudes winning the Tour de France. You know, there's some larger riders that are sprinters, um, but yeah, they they are not going to win the overall. And you even see that in cross country racing. You know, Nino Scherter, who's absolutely the most dominant cross country racer in the world right now, he's you know extremely fit, obviously, but he's not. The, you know, some huge muscly dude by any means, you really want to be as light as possible for bike riding. I mean, that's just going to work to your advantage, um, unless you're going downhill. So that said, you know, lifting weights can improve your power, like with leg exercises, for instance, and your bike handling with upper body and, and core work. Uh, it can also help prevent any injury. So, you know, if you're, if your muscles are stronger, then, you know, you can withstand crashes a little bit better. And, Luckily, you know, a lot of cycling weight training can be done with body weight or with kettlebells. So you don't really need a gym membership necessarily or like a full rack of weights to, to do a lot of this stuff. A lot of it can just be done, you know, in your backyard, in your living room uh, with no special equipment. All right. 
So we've talked a lot about ways to get in shape for mountain biking, but once you are in shape, you've built up that base or you've, you've got the endurance that you want. How do you maintain that? One of the ways that I personally do that is, uh, I don't, I don't always take an off season. So back when I was in high school, I used to run track and every year, you know, I would, as soon as track season was over, I would just get lazy and I would stop running or doing any of that stuff. And then once February rolled around, I would have to like start getting in shape all over again. And so as I've gotten older, um, I've really tried to maintain my level of activity throughout the year and not really taking off season. I run and bike as much as in the winter as I do in the summer. And for me, that's, that's allowed me to keep a really nice base and, you know, not have to go through the pain of getting back in shape once spring rolls around. What have you guys found? Do you guys take an off season? So I used to not take an off season, especially like you said, when I lived in Georgia is just bikes, bikes, bikes all the time. But I'm beginning to think that this is bad advice. And I pulled a group of pro riders or ex-pros and to get their theories on this. And there's a lot of disagreement out there. Um, some people sort of, a lot of people do that. Uh, others will take like two weeks off, but I'm starting to think if you really want to avoid overuse injuries, your body can really benefit from a break or a transition at least in your season. Uh, Ned Overend is a big proponent of taking an off season and he's still one of the fastest just dudes on the bike um, in his like mid to late fifties. But Ned doesn't sit on his ass all winter. He snowshoes, he cross country skis. Now he fat bikes. He does his weight training in the off season. So he stays extremely, extremely active. Um, one thing I tried to do this winter is not quit biking altogether because it's my job and I've got a ride. Um, but I reduced sort of my biking volume to about once or twice a week during the week. And my big exercise was instead backcountry skiing, um, on the weekend and touring alpine touring is probably one of the most difficult things i've ever done so that was uh, a massive uh, kick in the ass but a great way to stay in shape while still giving you know, my body a certain way to rest and recover and hopefully avoid overuse injuries going forward yeah if if i'm doing a full season of racing i like to take a solid two weeks off after the last race and just take that completely off the bike you know not even you know not even ride it to the store or anything like that. You know, that, that gives you the chance to recover, relax, and then you're refreshed when it's time to get back on the bike. You know, like like we've said, you know, here in Georgia, we can pretty much ride year-round, and I usually do. Um, but the difference is in the fall and the winter, my rides are, are more relaxed, and they, they kind of focus on having fun or exploring new trails instead of, you know, trying to accomplish some specific uh, goal. So, that's really how I keep a strong base is just continuing to ride. I don't do a lot of other activities. I probably should, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I pretty much just ride, ride all the bikes, ride, you know, ride the cross bike, ride the road bike a lot, a lot of the road bike in, in the winter. Um, actually, and right now in the summer, at least during the week, I'm on the road bike a lot. Um, just cause most of our local trails are covered in in spider webs and poison ivy this time of year so that's not super fun but yeah that's that's typically what i do take a couple weeks off after the season and then ease back in to the training again so like i said you know by the time 
January rolls around, I'm ready to start doing some hard rides and putting in some some uh, specific training by by the new year. Yeah, I never really thought about the racing aspect of it, but I'm sure that's why racing seasons don't last all year long. I mean, nobody can keep up that kind of effort, you know, for the entire year and just keep doing it over and over. Everybody definitely needs to do something different, at least, you know, maybe it's cycle cross and road biking and mountain biking, you know, depending on the season. But uh, yeah, there's definitely a need for uh, changing things up and, you know, maybe taking taking a little bit of a break, at least in terms of the intensity. Yeah, I I used to race uh, cyclocross a lot more. I, that's I love it. It's actually one of my favorite kinds of racing to do. But you know, a couple things. It's it, you know, it starts right after the mountain biking season ends, and it's such a different form of racing from mountain bike from most mountain bike racing. You know, typically what I do is uh, more endurance oriented events and cyclocross is not about endurance it's about you know pinning it for a very short period of time but you know mountain bike races like endurance races you have a long time to get warmed up and you know find your pace and you know push it at the end where you can't do that there is no warm-up for a cyclocross race it's red line from the go and red line to the finish so i've haven't really raced cyclocross the past couple seasons just because I was getting burned out after a summer, spring and summer full of mountain bike racing and then doing the whole fall uh, cyclocross series. You know, it, it's it's a pretty short season here in Georgia. I think it starts in October and ends in December. So, you know, and there's a race every single weekend in October and that's just, that's prime mountain biking time too. So to transition this a little bit, you know, one thing to consider if you're serious about creating a racing season and an annual schedule, there are two key things. Number one is uh, picking your primary race of the season. Like Jeff said, you can't be strong the entire season. So most racers, I mean, this is mountain biking. Uh, this is a solid running advice for most of these endurance or even speed-based um, racing you want to pick your A race. So what race do you want to truly dominate at? Um, this could be very obvious, like it's the um, world championship or something of that nature. Or it could be, if you're not like a pro, it could be whatever you're most stoked on. So maybe it's a specific stage race. You want that to be your peak race. So you might have other races in the season, but you can't be necessarily as prepared for them. So you might have your B, C, and your other races fall below that. So maybe you're doing a C race, but you're not even putting out your A effort because you don't want to blow yourself up before your A race in like a month. So you've got to consider those things. You also have to consider when your training is going to set you up to peak. Another common error is peaking too soon in the season. So if you're really stoked in December and you train really hard for six months and you peak in like say June, but your A race isn't until late August or something like that, you're going to have peak too early. And then you're again, you're going to face overtraining, you're going to burn out. Um, so you really have to do a lot of planning if you want to perform well at some of these events. You know, pick the race you want to do, structure your training around that, and let everything else sort of fall below that. Yeah, right on. So one of the other things that I try to do to maintain my fitness is to find ways to incorporate rides into some of my daily activities. So, you know, commuting to work or, you know, taking the kids out or, you know, running errands even on the bike. Uh, that's something that I try to do. What's your thought on that, Aaron? 
a lot of coaches would call those junk miles. What? I know. Um, they, they can kind of help maintain your base, but they're not going to really help you get any faster. Personally, my, my opinion on it is I think chill rides are, are just good for your mental health and to you know, prevent burning out. And you know, if, if all your rides are training rides, riding can start to feel like a chore, and then you're not going to want to do it. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I try to squeeze in as many you know, fun, pointless, you know, no Garmin, no rules kind of rides in there <laughs> when I'm training as well. Yeah, I will say, though, that I got this theory, I guess you would call it, uh, just from observing some of the, you know, really fast or the uh, mountain bikers that I know who have really good endurance. And a lot of them have pretty serious bike commutes. So, you know, they're riding six to 10 miles each way to work every single day. And outside of that, I don't see them doing a lot of other training, you know, but then somehow on the weekend, they're able to go out and bust out, you know, a hundred mile mountain bike ride. Um, and to me, yeah, I've always, the only thing that I can explain that with is that they just ride a lot of miles during the week. And somehow that keeps them in shape because honestly, nobody has time to, you know, do hundred mile rides every weekend. Um, you know, if that's, if you think that that's what these bike packing guys and, um, people that are doing these big endurance events are doing, you know, that's not the case. You know, I've seen, I've seen their Strava feeds, like people are not, you know, spending six hours a day on the bike. Um, you know, so you have to find other ways to get your mileage in. And it seems like a lot of these people are doing that through commutes and, you know, just, just generally trying to work it in whenever they can. Okay, another big thing for maintaining fitness is nutrition, right, Aaron? Yeah, we kind of touched on this earlier, but you you just need to find out what works for you personally in terms of nutrition on and off the bike. So, you know, we kind of already talked about off the bike is, you know, avoiding sugary foods and paying attention to the labels and stuff like that. But on the bike, you know, one thing I can tell you is don't switch up your nutrition on the day of an event. You know, if if this is your A race, this is what you've been training for all year. And, you know, every morning you eat oatmeal for breakfast. Don't get up on race day and eat a pile of eggs with some greasy bacon because <laughs> that's not going to end well for you. I can tell you through personal experience. You know, same thing goes for, for drink mixes. You know, a lot of times when you sign up for these events, you go to registration, you you sign in, and they give you a, a swag bag that's got a bunch of stuff in it. And most events are going to have a nutrition and or hydration sponsor, and they're probably going to slap some samples in the bags, which is, you know, that's cool. That's cool to have. And, you know, they'll have these items out at the, the aid stations on the course. But don't use the race itself as, as your testing grounds for that. You know, take that stuff home with you. Use what's been working for you uh, during your training when, you know, when the consequences are low. Because if it turns out it doesn't agree with your stomach, you just ruined a training ride instead of ruining your race you know so when i when i race i try to eat things i know agree with me from the aid stations and that's typically you know bananas oranges peanut butter uh, peanut butter and jelly pretzels stuff like that you know um i try to stay away from any strange bars or something i haven't tried before or don't eat regularly like uh you know for instance if there's cliff bars like i'll eat a cliff bar every once in a while but I know if I eat one during a race, it's not going to sit well in my stomach. Also, you know, if you have very specific dietary needs, you need to take advantage of 
sag bags during the race. You know, you need to you need to be responsible for your own nutrition. Don't count on a, an event to have it covered for you. Yeah, staying away from strange bars is a it's a good life tip as well. <laughs> I would say. <laughs> so finally, uh, let's talk a little bit about overtraining syndrome or OTS and. What, what is that about, Greg, and how can you avoid it? So if you're trying to stay fit, the number one thing you need to do is make sure you don't burn out. And this is still a science that is in its infant stages in a lot of senses. Like uh, I've read some scientific articles about OTS or overtraining syndrome just within the past six months, and people are still having a hard time wrapping their minds around it. But um, OTS can incorporate a bunch of things. One of the worst ways is when basically your entire body just tanks on you. You have no energy, you have no motivation, you know, your brain stops working, your um, your muscles don't go anymore. You know, any gains you're trying to make um, by pushing too hard and overtraining come to a screeching halt and you immediately start backsliding. And especially in the running community, some like top marathoners have burned out and overtrained and it's like instant retirement basically like this can end your career so but there's a lot of other things that can play into overtraining syndrome these can be training load injuries uh, definitely play into that sometimes called overuse injuries but generally these things result from again just building your volume too fast so this is really important it's something i've been digging into quite a bit and We've touched on it in a bunch of different ways. So you don't want to build your volume too fast. You know, you want to increase that roughly 10% a week. You need to take rest weeks and taper before events. Consider an off season and consider cross training with other activities. Um, because if you do hit overtraining, if you do totally burn out, you know, it can, it can be the end of the line in a lot of senses. So be cautious, be really cautious. Yeah. I think one thing we've kind of neglected to mention that you just brought up, it's really important is the, uh, the mental aspect to it because, you know, apart from your body just wearing out, like, yeah, if, if it's not fun anymore, um, then it's just going to wear on you mentally and you're not going to, you're going to dread riding your bike. So if, if that's happening, chances are you're overtraining. So in addition to allowing your, your body time to recover, you need to, you need to give time for your mind to recover as well. Absolutely. Well, this has been a fun discussion. Hopefully it's been helpful to people who are looking at getting or staying in shape for mountain biking. If you have a story about getting in shape for mountain biking, if you're one of these couch to dirty century mountain bikers, we'd love to hear your story and we'd love to get your tips as well. So head to the Single Tracks forums and check in with us. That's all we have this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Peace. Peace.